welcome to the Institute of Education and all the Americans here at UCL. I do apologize in advance for uh, basically losing my voice today, but luckily I won't be speaking very much and I'll be very happy to hand over to my colleagues in, in a moment. Um, but let me just say a few words, I think, because um, it's important to kind of set the scene a little bit for what we are hoping to address here this, this evening. Um, and it's great to see so many of you here, which just indicates interest, of course, including in London, uh, in Colombia, and in the peace accords. Um, now, we are, of course, here now in a state where we are, are after the plebiscite of the 2nd of, of September, which, of course, you all know, there was a very slim morality who voted no uh, uh, or against the adoption of the peace accord, accords um, with, and this is quite important, this is something that we will address, a very significant abstention rate uh, of close to, what, 63% abstention rate. So nearly two-thirds of eligible voters in Colombia did not vote in this plebiscite. Uh, um, so... The immediate result of the Clemson, of course, is the rejection of the peace agreement that was signed in Cartagena at the end of September. Uh, this peace agreement, as you all know, was a result of uh, four years or so of very arduous negotiations between the Santos government and the FARC. Um, and as we will address, and I believe all you know, this was an agreement that touched on a whole range of areas concerning the armed conflict in uh, Colombia, including land reform, political participation of, uh, of uh, rebels uh, or the, the FARC, uh, illegal drugs trade, transition justice, and so on and so forth, demobilization of uh, fighters. Um, so what now? The peace agreement in its current form is, uh, was rejected uh, in, in the vote. Is it implementable still, and if so, in what form? For now, as you know, I believe, um, the UN monitoring and verification mechanisms is still in, in some form of operation, it still remains in Colombia. Uh, the pilot coca substitution program, to my understanding, is still underway in some form or another. Um, and recently there was, of course, the um, uh, announcement of the, um, uh, the peace negotiations with the ELN, ELN um, being publicly declared. Right? <laughs> Um, and then, of course, uh, the Norwegian part of the Nobel uh, family decided to uh, award the uh, Nobel Peace Prize to uh, President Santos. And what we've seen in recent uh, uh, few days, a large public demonstrations in support of peace. However, there are, of course, very strong and key issues of contention, which we will address in the panel today, including uh, something that is, to, to my heart and to my mind, an important issue around uh, issues of, of accountability, justice, and of course politi political participation of the mobilized FARC members, but also, of course, uh, very strong opposition on the parts to like, the rural development and land reform um, components of the um, peace agreement. Now, publicly at least, um, the opponents of the peace accord most prominently led by ex-president Uribe, um, stated that there was a, a strong need for changes to their cause in various areas, most particularly around what the so-called um, uh, um, uh, deprivation or privation of liberty or the restriction of the, of, 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 of uh, demobilized or just, um, uh, restriction of liberty 
as we've seen in the peace accord of, of demobilized uh, members, uh, wanted to uh, um, uh, make it uh, more specific, specified uh, further, but like that in, in general terms. Uh, also put forward, uh, the Libre account put forward, as you know, perhaps a uh, proposal for the, the terms of political participation of, of, of FARC uh, members, uh, uh, and also support to some degree, but also recommended very strongly the return to aerial uh, herbicide fumigation of coca plants. Right. Mm. So overall, um, what we perhaps can see <laughs> is for, for those who um, favour the adoption of the peace agreement in some form, there is some cause for optimism that in some form court will be um, agreed upon and uh, adopted. But there are, of course, huge challenges in a whole range of areas, as we will discuss today. Will the very fragile ceasefire between FARC and and the armed forces hold. Um, uh, how long will the renegotiations take, and what are the likely outcomes of the uh, the renewed negotiations? So it's just a great pleasure um, to welcome uh, uh, great colleagues here this, this evening, experts on Colombia, to try to help us make sense of some of these issues and others, of course. Um, and uh, we have all agreed to keep the introductory comments fairly short and snappy in order to allow for questions, comments um, in, in, in a few moments. Um, so we will start with Grace Livingstone, uh, who uh, has a, well, could I say long history of, of, of journalistic, journalistic activity in, 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 in Latin America, who has written extensively on, on um, the drug economy and, and drug trade and, and U.S. Uh, Colombian relations. Um, uh, Grace is going to be followed, uh, what do you agree, with, uh, by Nick, Nick Morgan, uh, at Newcastle, Newcastle University, previously uh, based in Colombia for a long period of time, working at the University of Los Angeles, who has worked extensively in, in various regions of, of uh, Colombia, uh, including Chocó region, uh, most, most recently. And uh, finally, uh, we'll have uh, Louise Will Stanley, who I believe is known to many of you as the face of Baby Colombia, perhaps the leading uh, advocacy organization here in the UK, bringing together a whole range of, of uh, NGOs working in and on Colombia, and who brings just wealth of experience uh, working with Colombian organizations as well as in Colombia. So, Grace, shoot. between all of us and the other panellists um, discussing why we got that you know, shocking result two weeks ago and where we go from here. Um, I originally, um, as part of saying, was going to talk about uh, drugs and illicit coca cultivation. This was when we were planning the seminar thinking that the peace accords would be agreed. Um, but I will, I, so I'm not going to talk about that and I'm happy to answer think, questions about that. But I will say that when I was reading the peace accords, um, the agreements on illicit uh, cultivation and rural development, um, they were incredibly impressive. They were <coughs> talking about uh, consensual, manual eradication, and crucially on rural development, <coughs> it was about distributing land 
to small farmers, to landless people, uh, providing small farmers with credit, uh, providing infrastructure, irrigation, roads to the market, everything you need really to address the roots of the crisis, the conflict in Colombia, which, you know, as you probably know, uh, rural poverty and rural inequality. And it will be a terrible shame if those plans for rural development don't go ahead. But when I was um, reading those uh, uh, peace accords and those plans for rural development, even then I was thinking, well, the problem will be implementation. Because there is in Colombia you know, a large part of the elite, many uh, landowners who don't want to give up any of their land, um, a hardline section of the elite. Um, we've seen uh, when the government passed the law allowing displaced people to go back to their land, we saw a rise in the number of killings of land activists when displaced people tried to go back, they were met with paramilitary violence. And I thought it was interesting, um, Juan Carlos Vélez, who was the head of the No campaign, made um, quite a revealing interview. And one of the things he said was 30 companies had funded the No campaign and there were five big funders. And it was interesting that these companies weren't the biggest companies in Colombia. They weren't the banks. They were Colombian family-owned, but still quite big uh, conglomerates. Quite a number of them based in Antioquia, which is in Medellin, which is, uh, as you may know, the, the base of the former president, Alvaro Uribe, the right-winger. Um, and I think it, that, again, was further evidence that there's some parts of the, the business elite, some parts of uh, the landowning elite, particularly in the regions, that have still cling to this sort of hardline view of no compromise and no brooking of dissent. And unfortunately, I think that's what we saw um, some of we saw in the referendum results. I mean, it was also interesting that um, Juan Carlos Vélez was talking about how they deliberately uh, manipulated the facts, this very interesting word, tergiversation, <laughs> you don't hear very often, but he basically admitted that they were distorting the facts about the, the peace agreement, and they deliberately tried to get people to go into the polling stations angry, that's what he said to me. Um, so to, they were playing on people's emotions, and that's what right-wing populists often do. Um, we've seen that in the States, we've seen that here. Um, we saw them talking about issues that weren't really anything to do with the peace accord, this alliance with the religious right, talking about you know, the teaching of gay issues in schools, you know, really nothing to do with the peace, the peace accords, but um, using the uh, religious right and the you know, growth of Pentecostalism, particularly among the, amongst the urban poor. And this very emotional issue that you were um, referring to about uh, what to do with people who uh, committed, uh, violated human rights abuses and um, so letting the FARC off the hook, you know, that was one of the main themes. And I mean, I, I think, you know, if we'd had a vote on the Northern Ireland Agreement here and you'd had a, you know, big right-wing movement and some of the press saying, oh, that these IRA murderers should go to jail, we might well have got a no vote too. It's, these are very um, emotional issues. So I'm going to give an um, overview, basically, of the, how the votes went. Uh, I did mean to bring a pointer, but unfortunately I forgot, so there is one here. So basically, this is a map of how people voted. The, the pink, the orangey colours is where they voted no against peace, and the green is where they voted um, in favour of peace. Um, the map on your right 
basically I'm going to show the sort of socio-economic basis behind the vote. The map of the right on the right shows the level of poverty in Colombia. The lighter areas are where people, where the regions where people are richer, and as they get darker, it's poorer and poorer. And as you can see, there's a very clear correlation. Um, basically, the richer areas tended to vote against peace, and the poorer areas um, tended to vote um, in favour of the peace agreement. <coughs> This is, this is basically showing the same thing. These are the, the, the poorest regions in Colombia, the bottom um, 25%, and see, overwhelmingly they voted in favour of peace. This is a map of urbanisation, and again you can see there's not a complete correlation, but uh, in, in the main, the areas that voted uh, against the peace agreement were the most urban um, areas. The cities, more than half the cities voted against the peace agreement. Um, and lots of small towns. The, the exception is up there in, on the Atlantic coast. That's, um, they voted heavily in favour of peace, but that's a very poor urban, uh, densely populated, but quite a poor area. I'm, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So generally speaking, we can say that areas that voted um, against the peace agreement were richer and more urban. Um, the big exception, of course, is Bogotá. It's a bit like London in Brexit. It's more cosmopolitan has a slightly more internationalist outlook than you know, the financial sector's base there, there's progressive movements there, there's you know, lots of state employees, trade unions, uh, students. Um, so, you know, they're a bit of a sort of island in a sea of pink there, Bogota. Um, lots of people have pointed this out, that um, <coughs> areas that were most uh, hit by the conflict, who had the most number of victims... Um, Tended. All these are generalisations and um, there are exceptions to, to the rule and we can discuss them. And I'm going to discuss one of them, these areas in the South later. But um, the areas, on the whole, the areas with the most numbers of victims um, voted in favour of peace. Um, this is a map that shows the most conflict hit areas in terms of displacement, disappearances, killings, bombings, um, all the numbers of victims. And... Generally speaking, they voted in favour of the peace agreement. And, and that's interesting because a lot of the no campaign was based on, well, what about the victims? You know, they need justice and, you know, these people who perpetrated these crimes should go to jail. Well, in fact, a large number of people who actually suffered the crime are saying, well, no, we're prepared, you know, the agreement's not perfect, but we want to stop the fighting. I think I, I won't show you this. It's basically showing you the same things that the top... Uh, three departments in terms of number of victims voted um, in favour of the peace agreement. But again, as we've heard, one of the biggest questions is, um, it, you know, one of the shocking things was the level of abstention, 63%. Um, I know Nick's going to talk a bit more about this, so I'll just say a couple of things. I mean, one, peop one thing people have said to me is that um, during uh, congressional elections and presidential elections, uh, local politicians who have an interest, a personal interest in getting elected and getting the vote out, they often put buses on to get people to the polling station, they give, offer certain incentives to, you know, in their local area, and you didn't really have see any of that because, you know, these politicians didn't have a personal interest. So that sort of clientelist structure wasn't in play in this election, so that's one reason. Um, you can see there, the darker regions are where people, where less, fewer but a smaller percentage of people voted. Um, and you can see on the Atlantic coast, 
There's a very high abstention rate, and of course um, that was hit by Hurricane Matthew on, on that day. I mean, some, I mean, I think it's outrageous. In some regions in Magdalene, the polling stations weren't even open. They couldn't get the material to some of those polling stations. Many areas were flooded. Um, and that's really important. You'll have the map of Colombia imprinted in your retinas by the end of this. Because if you look, this is the, the results of the presidential election campaign in 2014. And basically, the no, uh, the Uribe is in blue and President Santos is the, the yellow colour. And you can see it's quite um, similar to, to how people voted um, in this referendum. But Santos actually won. And the big difference is, is in the um, Atlantic coast, we saw you know, the really densely populated, big urban populations. They came out and voted for Santos in the presidential campaign. But um, during the... But in the referendum campaign, many of them couldn't actually get to the polling stations to vote. Um, I know that the electoral authorities are considering, there's been appeals to rerun the vote in certain areas on the Atlantic coast, and they say that they're considering it. As far as I know, that they haven't come to a decision on that yet, and if so, which areas it will be. But that, that was enough votes to swing, to, to swing the vote. So, I mean, I think that's quite a crucial um, <coughs> factor. I mean, some of the other reasons that people voted, I mean, people have said that Santos, you know, personally is quite unpopular at the, at the moment and maybe he should have put the victims at the front of the campaign. But, uh, and just more generally, there's a lot of people who don't trust any politicians. They don't think voting will change their life. And, in, you know, in many of these areas, there's a, a climate of violence. I mean, I'm always in awe of people, Colombian activists, who continue to take part in the political process and... Um, campaign and so on, despite threats of violence, but it's not surprising that a very large number of people, you know, withdraw into their family lives, into their, you know, personal lives and don't take part in the political process. And I think, you know, that's actually a historic trend you see in a lot of elections. But I just wanted, I'm just going to focus in on one area just briefly, um, which is Kakita, because... This is one of the areas that doesn't fit some of the trends I've been saying. It's one of the poorest areas in um, Colombia. It's one of the most conflict-ridden, and yet it voted no, this one down here. It's also an area where the FARC are very strong. So, I mean, I was quite interested to see why they voted no, and I spoke to NGOs who've been working there for many years and with rural communities. Um, and they pointed out that uh, in Florencia there was a very strong vote um, for, for no, that basically swung it. Basically, where the city, because most people in all these states, if the city votes no, that's going to tip it because that's where most people live. And in Florencia, there, there are, particularly among the urban middle class, people who've been hit by uh, FARC attacks, by extortion, or if they haven't felt it themselves, they've seen it. You know, there's quite a lot of anger um, among, in Florencia against the FARC. And even amongst the urban poor, not just... Um, it's, it's quite interesting that the, uh, the rural poor seem to have voted quite um, strongly for yes, but the urban poor, like even in Bogotá, Ciudad Bolívar, one of the big shanty towns, voted no. And I think some of these arguments, for example, that the FARC are going to get this salary, and it was distorted the amount they were going to get, but this idea that the FARC are going to get something and we who haven't done anything aren't going to get anything, that um, 
ran quite well with, you know, angered quite a lot of the urban poor, and that's what they were saying in Florencia. There's quite a lot of anger against the FARC. In, in the rural areas of Capita, on, that, on the whole, they voted yes, but there was a very high abstention rate. And some of the things people were saying, one was quite interesting is that in these areas, the FARC, in the absence of a state, the FARC are the forces of law and order, and some people are actually scared what will happen what would have happened if the, if the peace agreement had gone ahead. They didn't have the confidence that the state would provide security and they felt that they might be at the mercy of you know, <coughs> indisciplined armed gangs and at the moment there was a you know, measure of stability. So that was quite a sort of counterintuitive argument. Some people were saying they were worried there'd be an influx of more oil companies. But on the whole, there was this 70% abstention rate there and people who were working with the rural community said on the whole, a lot of people said they you know, didn't even want to say how they were going to vote um, or if they were going to vote, um, you know, they're in the presence of a, the one-armed group is particularly strong there, and they prefer just to abstain from the political process and, you know, not put their head above the parapet, understandably. Um, and also, this just to, in these areas are quite isolated, where the state is, pre is barely present. Many of the houses <coughs> in the most rural areas, isolated areas, don't have electricity. There's few roads, they just don't really have confidence that anything will change, the state will do anything regardless of how they vote. Um, I'm going to finish, but just on this point about um, armed groups, I did look to see whether um, the presence of armed groups nationally, there was a correlation on how people voted, but there wasn't a simple pattern, for example, if paramilitaries were there, people voted yes or no, or if the FARC were there, they voted yes or no. I think it did have an impact in each region, but you'd have to look more carefully about you know, what exactly that was. There wasn't an overall pattern. So I'm going to really um, leave it to my other panellists to talk about what happens now, just simply to say um, I think it is a very difficult situation because some of the demands Uribe are, are making, you know, he basically wants to surrender <coughs> to a group that hasn't been militarily defeated, and I, you know, I think it will be quite difficult, but I think it's very, I think it's good that Santos has got the Nobel Peace Prize. Hopefully that will give them more authority in these talks. And particularly heartening is to see civil society coming out on the streets in Colombia, really pushing for a, um, all sides to compromise to get a peace. And that's really, if we're going to be hopeful about anything, it's you know, the, the sort of upsurge in support for peace we've seen from um, civil society. Pleasure to be here. Um, some of you can hear me say things that I said last week in Soros. Um, the title, of course, yeah, well, that was the name of this of this event. There were challenges. I mean, part accuses me of seeing, you know, a half a glass half empty kind of guy, and I guess I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to do that again today. But um, problems, yeah. I mean, I've got a boring PowerPoint, but uh, you can, these are my notes to myself. There's one map there. Uh, I'm going to skip over some bits, which Grace has already mentioned. But I mean, we need to think about this in context. It's been a long process, a peculiar process in many ways, because of course it's carried out behind closed doors. Yet at the same time, it's something which is, uh, you know, put there for popular approval, uh, when most people don't really know what the accords were about. I mean, uh, we, we, you know, many people were were 
were passing the accords around it, saying, you've got to read these 297 pages before you vote. How many people, let's be honest, were really going to do that? If you think about the UK, how many people read manifestos, you know? And, and this was part of the issue. Well, what, what was the kind of political spin on, 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 this, particular, on this particular vote? Um, there's a whole question about political legitimacy which comes up. I mean, Grace has already mentioned it when we talk about this issue of um, abstention. And this, I mean, we need to think more broadly about Colonia. There's a tendency, I think, to kind of get stuck to have our faces pressed up against the glass of what a transitional justice is. But I guess my main concern is, is about inequality in the mo one of the most in in unequal countries in the world. This has got to be one of the things which is right up on the list on the, on, on, on the list of things that we need to take into account. Now, obviously, a peace accord like this one can't fix Colombia. That was never going to be, you know, on the table. But there are some things that we need to think about. Um, what does this silence of the majority say? I mean, there's a, there's a kind of long-standing view of a country like Colombia which seeks to explain why it's been a relatively violent country uh, in terms of semi-democracy, right? You know, dictatorships, well, people who don't like the way things are have reason to want to use violence, but they don't have the resources. And in democracies, or you know, greater democracies, let's put it that way, you might have reasons to dislike the status quo, and you've got channels that you could use. But in semi-democracies, you have kind of uh, ample reasons for not liking the way things are, because the political system is closed in all sorts of ways, but you also have the resources to do so. I mean, there's, 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 that's debatable. There's a whole issue about that. And then there's a question about, you know, what is the legitimacy of the Colombian political system anyway? I mean, you, know, you talk to most Colombians about politics, and politics is not rated very highly, is it? If you look at institutions, Congress is right there at the bottom. The army is rated far more highly than, than Congress in terms of people's, uh, you know, respect for that particular institution. Most of my work in recent years has been on citizen organi community organisation, citizen participation in, in politics. And what always struck me there was that most of the people I worked with, I guess overwhelmingly women, probably some of 90% women, um, never talked about what they did as politics. Yeah? Community organising wasn't politics. Uh, polit politics was what came later. Politics was what Uribe, of course, always used to call politiqueria. You know, uh, wheeling and dealing, which is ironic coming from someone who's the great wheeling and dealer. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I better move on. Let's let's. I, I think we need to accept this. This is a defeat for the FARC. Nobody's talking about this. This is a defeat for the FARC. They've had to they've had to surrender effectively. Yeah. And now they're going to have to surrender some more. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's pretty much what's going to happen. Um, you know, and, and people talk about the FARC as dinosaurs and Timoshenko's. You know. Um, uh, speeches and all of this kind of stuff, some of which, of course, are deliberately aimed at keeping some kind of discipline amongst the, 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 the FARC's own ranks, right? You can't suddenly change your language, yeah? So there's a kind of issue there. I definitely get the feeling when I hear him speaking that sometimes he's talking for, sort of pu to the public, sometimes he's talking to the FARC, and that's been a difficult act for them to kind of follow, uh, particularly because they're stuck in that particular kind of mindset anyway. So, yeah, I think they are dinosaurs. I mean, I, I've never been particularly fond of the fact I think of them as Stalinist, you know, even, even within the kind of, you know, the, 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 what's the word, the kind of the spread of armed groups in Colombia. Um, but the, on the other hand, look, look, the model's best too, right? I mean, ne neoliberalism, people don't like me bringing it up because they say, well, what do you mean by it? But I'd say that the kind of development model of the state is not a good one either. So we've got dinosaurs talking to dinosaurs in a sense. We've got zombie politicians talking about these kind of models. I mean, what's more dinosaur than, than Santos talking about the locomotives of progress, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, he's still talking in those terms. 
But we're in a peculiar situation because we got this accord, which for Udibe wasn't was was too generous, right? Yeah, I, I, we'll talk a little bit in a minute about maybe what uh, Uribe wants. For the Elenos, it was never generous enough. Uh, in particular, it didn't bring um, civil society. Again, a word I really hate. I think a civil society is you know they're the kind of institutions of the bourgeoisie, right? So this all this all this kind of you know, genuflection between the notion of civil society. You know, I always bring this up every time. It, it's something we need to think about. Yeah, but how do we bring more perspectives into it? think about something like the Cumbre Agraria, if we think about all of those uh, movements, Af Afro-Colombian movements, indigenous movements, peasant movements, which you know, revolutionized Colombia in 2013-14, yeah? we, 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 we need to think about that. How, do, how, how were they ever going to be brought into this process? Because I don't think they ever really were. It was very clear in the Cumbre Agraria that people felt that what was going in Havana didn't represent them. Um, so that's, you know, that's an issue. What's going to happen with the Elenos now? Well, we don't know. What's going to happen with the Bakri? We don't know. Uh, thinking about what actually happened in this event, you know, we can say, okay, we've got an elite split going on here. Um, that's pretty clear. But how we read that elite, elite split is another question. I mean, there's a tendency by some people who like these sort of Gramscian analyses to say that... Uh, You've got one sector of the elites which represents the kind of, you know, large agribusiness and ganaderos and all of this kind of stuff. And then you've got another section of the elites which is more kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, financial, etc. I'm not sure how that works. One of the things that I, uh, I, I suspect as well, a lot of this is about who's actually got hold of the levers of power, right? It's a spat between Santos and Uribe. You know, just watch them. They'll make, it, they'll make up in the end. You know, the capacity for the Colombian elites to make up yeah, well, we saw it in the French National, right? They're always capable of repartiendo el botín, sharing out the booty. So there's, there's a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of performance and play acting going on as well, I think. Yeah, so that, that's what I mean by a struggle for political power in a kind of patrimonial system. And that's one of the questions. How does politics work in Colombia? Grace mentioned this issue about you know, people getting the voter. Yeah? And, and, and you, you talk about the, you know, the empresas electorales, the, you know, the electoral businesses. Well, they're very much there, aren't they? And very much, uh, they're absolutely, what's the word for it? They're, they're, they're decisive in the way people, uh, in getting people out to vote and very often in how people vote. One of the things that I found personally infuriating about this was that Uribe, who was this kind of, to me anyway, seemed like this increasingly irrelevant voice. I mean, you'd see the kind of pro-Santos media certainly spinning in that way. He's suddenly back with a bang, right? And that I found deeply disturbing. Um, if you think about the campaign, well, it was marked by disinformation, wasn't it? Grace has mentioned a lot of this already. I mean, I see the no campaign as entirely based on envy, resentment, and fear. A bit like Brexit. Um, you know, all this talk about Castro Chavismo, whatever that is. I mean, that's some kind of fantasy that they've invented. I don't know any what it's supposed to be. Apparently, it's, it's some version of hell, anyway. You know? The nonsense about ideologia de género and the question about uh, evangelical Christianity in Colombia is obviously a hugely significant one that we need to take seriously and think about. Grace has mentioned the rest. I mean, what struck me about the, the Yes campaign, was, it was pretty weak in many ways, but also this issue that they wanted their cake and eat it. On one hand, they said, this is not a negotiation about the future of Colombia, but when it came to a vote, it was a vote about the future of Colombia. Right? So that was a bit kind of disingenuous. And there's a whole cultural aspect of this which is underexplored and needs to be thought through. What peace processes mean 
ultimately ends up being what they mean in popular culture, really. It's how people remember them, what kind of memories are constructed by majorities. And they're very often twisted and warped in all sorts of ways. So we can spend all our time talking about wonderful agreements and accords, but what they actually mean is what your taxi driver probably is going to tell you. And it might be something crazy, but when you know, every taxi driver you meet tells you this, then you, know, you, you need to take it seriously. You know, a violent peace ahead. Jenny Pierce always used to talk about the, you know, the potential of a violent peace. Grace has mentioned much of this. She's mentioned the urban-rural uh, issue. There's a real serious legitimacy problem right now in terms of, well, who's negotiating and why? Yeah, who, who decided that Uribe suddenly has this kind of legitimacy to you know, say this, that, and the other? Yeah? It's a problem. The FARC obviously said, well, we don't want to talk to them. Yeah, you know, so so there are all kinds of there are all kinds of problems around that about legitimacy. Legitimacy is what this process hasn't had. It's what's missing in all sorts of ways. Um, there's a question that um, some people would say that uh, okay, civil society, students, social movements, indigenous. A lot of that is good. I'm totally in favour of those demonstrations in Plaza Bolivar. I agree with Pat and I agree with Grace. They're extremely promising. <clears throat> Let's hope it comes to something. Something that Roddy Brett mentioned to me, Roddy uh, was working with victims in Havana, and he, it struck him that one of the effects of the no vote was a kind of re-traumatization of victims, or a dragging them back, an attempt by the right wing to say, no, we will not allow you to reconcile. Yeah? We want to appropriate your suffering, yeah? and we're not allowing you to, to let it go. And I think that's something which is worth, think, worth thinking about. One of the comments that Roddy made in a positive sense was that he'd seen over the last year with a shift in kind of government discourse that these people who had initially thought of themselves as victims were now seeing themselves as citizens with rights. And I think that is a, a, a tremendously important issue that needs to be kind of emphasized. So what counts as justice? Um, What's Uribe, what's Uribe on about? I mean, it, all, so much of it was like, no, we need to punish these people. We cannot let these far combatants, you know, not go to jail. Interestingly, now that knows when, he's, stopped, he's dropped that. He's not talking about sending people to jail. And it might it make us think that maybe the things that worried Uribe, or the, one, the reasons why Uribe was against this, this accord, were different ones, right? And we'll think about that in a minute. Um, part of it is the whole issue about falsos positivos, I think. He wants that to go away, yeah? Um, and there's also this question about land restitution legislation, which they definitely don't like. I mean, Grace mentioned this as well. <laughs> and then there is this other question, what is negotiable in terms of you know, human rights? What can we negotiate? I'm going to say this provocative thing that I'm sure Pat won't like, but I'm going to say it again. Very often in these peace processes, what happens, what you get is a, a process through which those who benefited from the conflict, and let's not forget this, Colombia went through the biggest process of agrarian counter-reform it's ever experienced, right? You know, through the 90s and continuing into the 2000s, right? A huge process of agrarian counter-reform. So, very often these peace processes are about letting the people who benefited from those things keep their gains. And what's the payoff? The payoff is the moral victory of the, of, of, of the victims. Yeah, the moral victory of the victims. Because Uribe doesn't even want them to have a moral, a moral victory, the, the, you know, the victims of, of paramilitarism, for example. But there's a whole question about what is actually negotiable in terms of, of, of human rights. Um, the whole question around structural violence, well, you know, it's not going away. And um, this is where I want to get, I've got a few minutes left, just a couple of minutes left, and I want to talk about a specific case, because I've been working a lot in El Chocó, and in El Chocó people are really worried <laughs> about what is to come. El Chocó has been going in, in a pretty disastrous state anyway, mining, of course, being one of the huge issues there. 
But I want to talk a little bit about this case here um, in, in, in Urawa. Well, you can see El Choco there. And, and Urawa is that gulf up there, just next to El Choco. Um, one of the things that's really noticeable, I mean, you mentioned well, things like, I think it was Ardila Lule, were you referring to? One of the things that many of those big groups did, they simply supported both sides. It's standard business practice, isn't it, in Colombia? That you, you, you support both candidates for the presidency, so they both owe you favours, right? That's just what they do. But what was really striking here was the role of Bananeras yeah, in, in, in the No campaign. They were solidly um, supporting the No campaign, and they were solid com contributors to that campaign. Um, and of course, we think about the role of the Bananeras historically in Uruguay as being horrendous, right? They've been promoted as a paramilitarism. Um, and the case, that, the reason why I see this as something relevant to the Choco is because there's this whole question about the Consejo Comunitario in, in Puerto Girón. Most of you, I guess, you know about the legislation which allows Afro Colombian communities to have collective title to their lands, etc. Yes, and that process is still going on. It's been stalled in many places. There have been some recent uh, significant gains in the Rio Naya, in, um, <coughs> uh, in uh, coming down to Buenaventura, close to Buenaventura. There was a you know a, a huge land title given out just in November. So sort of positive things there. But um, I'm not going to bother translating all of this, but you can see some of the names of the companies here um, and, and their relationship with, I guess, paramilitarism. This Consejo Comunitario, the people who want to set the, the Consejo Comunitario in Puerto Girón, have been waiting 17 years for this. This process has been going on for 17 years. They've been affected both by the 57 front of the FARC and also by the Alcantensis, right? And what, what we've seen is really, and this is one of the issues, Institutionality is one of the key things in these accords, right? Shoring up the institutions. This, again, is an area where I'm deeply sceptical and concerned. You know, How will the Colombian state improve its performance or the performance of its institutions? I don't see it. History gives us no suggestion that things are going to suddenly change. And what we've seen is in their relationship with most bits of the state, of course, we have to be careful also. There's a tendency to see the Colombian state as this monolithic sort of bad thing. And I don't see it that way at all. It's complicated. Bits of the state work. Bits of the state are at war with other bits of the state. It's, it's a complicated thing. But nonetheless, on a regional level, what, we saw, what we've seen in the case of this particular concept of Italia are, are really sort of appalling uh, failures, institutional failures. Um, the key point being that between 2004 and 2009, there were many concessions given to banana companies within the, what, what these people were claiming as their collective title. And related to that is this um, Puerto Bahia Colombia, yeah, which is you know a, a, a planned port. We've got we've got one in El Chocó as well. <coughs> Um, and it's something that is being promoted by Vargas Lleras. And the role of Vargas Lleras in all of this is worth thinking about. Vargas Lleras is a, how can I put it? He's a, he's, he's a crafty politician, let's put it that way. To the extent that he could either be Uribe or Santos' candidate. Yeah, it depends on who looks like being in the ascendant. Uh, but he's someone who's very much promoting these, these particular forms of mega projects. Yeah. Um, well, you can see that the kind of notes that I've got here. Basically, what we've seen is that this, this project was given an environmental license without any consulta previa. And the whole issue about consulta previa, of course, is a key one because Colombian legislation says that you need consulta previa with these communities before you can carry out these kind of projects. Uh, and you can see the state sort of arguing with itself here. Yeah? 
um, you know, by September 2016, so not long ago at all, the Constitutional Court is asking the, 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 the Unidad de Tierras to look into this particular case because it recognises that the other bits of the state have got it wrong. Yeah? Um, and I guess what we're looking at really on a local level is some form of state capture, right? which has always been the issue around the paramilitarism, etc. But just slightly over time. But I'm going to finish now, last minute. This is my last slide. Um, as far as El Choco is concerned, well, okay, so if a, if, if a quarter of El Choco is given over to, to multinational mining concessions, what, what's going to happen now? You know, up to now, there's been a, a lack of consulta previa, and in the case of El Choco, unlike other places, this has actually stopped most of these concessions being exploited. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I would say, sort of coincidentally, one of the things which saved bits of the environment in El Choco was the very existence of the, of, of the violence, right? Of course, on the other hand, you've got to, you've got to t uh, uh, take into account that those armed actors are also actively engaged in narco-trafficking, which is one of the major causes of environmental degradation. So, so you can't win. Uh, but it was, let's put it like this, it was common knowledge in Quito, amongst the dioceses, right? This, this, is, this is the Catholic Church who's saying this, that those consejos comunitarios, where there was presence of armed actors of the left, always functioned better than the ones which were in areas where there was a presence of, you know, armed actors of the right or paramilitaries or whatever you like. So, you know, I, and I don't see that as a, I'm not supporting those armed actors, but it's nonetheless an interesting observation. And when those armed actors are no longer there, what's going to happen to those conservative communities? Will they just be open to, you know, the assault of paramilitarism, etc.? And Uribe has clearly said, look, this consulta previa thing, it's getting in the way of development, yeah? You know, and that's something which I find deeply worrying. And the accords as they stand, well... They promised many things about rural development, but my, my intuition is that oh, that's just words. Yeah, what, what, what it's really about is large-scale agribusiness. That's what they want to promote, and that bothers me, and I'll stop at that. Articulated by Uribe. 
Um, and also, I'm not going to really go into detail on all of them, because there are 75 proposals currently on the table, so that would just be an impossibility. Um, also, because I'm hopeful that this peace agreement, in its majority, might still be saved, and I think that's what people are working for in Colombia, that's what people are protesting for in Colombia. And I have to say that this agreement was quite a comprehensive and very important agreement from the things that were actually achieved in it. And I think one of the major achievements was that of women and what, of what they got into this agreement and what that would mean for them to have this in writing in terms of trying to work towards its implementation. So uh, the process I've gone through is to look a little bit at um, how women first began the negotiations in Havana. Um, then I'm going to look at each of the agenda items and just very quickly summarize the, the main points of each of the agreements. And then look at what it was that women achieved under those agreements. And then uh, on some of them I've looked at what the no campaign is asking for and therefore what the implications are. And I hope I can stay in the time but you might have to keep me to come on the way. Okay, so... Um, uh, just over a year after the peace um, uh, negotiations started in Havana, uh, women's network works who've been working consistently to get uh, women's voice into the peace process finally accomplished having appointed two women negotiators on the uh, Colombian government side as frontline negotiators. They also established something which is very new and has been very important to this whole process, and that was the Gender Subcommission. Basically, that was made up of women from both sides of the negotiating table, and they drew on the expert advice of women's civil society organisations. And this proved to be really important. It was an education, I think, too, for the women who are actually in the gender subcommission. So it was a completely a joint work, and actually, in, in many aspects, the, all of the women on the gender subcommission, even though they came from two different sides, along with civil society organisations, were actually arguing for the same things. So it's a very interesting dynamic that was uh, developed within that subcommission. And their, their aim was to put a gender perspective on, on all of the agreements. And the definition that um, is in the document of equality and gender is the recognition of women as autonomous citizens, subjects of rights, regardless of their marital status, family or community relationships, and having equal access with respect to men. So really it's the first time in the peace process that real efforts have been made to understand how the conflict has impacted differentially on women. And that you'll find throughout <coughs> of the, the agreements, the recognition of that really unequal uh, impact that it's had on women. It also includes affirmative action for women and for LGBTI organisations. And, um, and the population in its diversity has been able to express how the conflict has affected and how affirmative action for various expressions of gender um, have been given uh, adequate rights conditions. Um, women took several delegations to Havana, which I'm sure you're all aware of. They were consulted as experts, but not only on gender-based and conflict violence, um, and also they made it clear throughout all of their, all of their um, presentations to the negotiators that there could be no amnesty to conflict-related sexual violence. 
Uh, what we saw throughout the throughout the years that they've been discussing, the last four years of the, the peace process, is an increase in violence against human rights defenders and civil society leaders. Um, we've just seen the numbers of those being killed increasing year on year. With last year, there were 63 human rights defenders killed. That, according to frontline figures that looks globally, that meant that every third human rights defender that was killed in the world was Colombian. And that is quite an amazing statistic. And they've really been attacked. And, and in <coughs> 2013, the attacks against women defenders increased by 160%. Until last year, it brought them nearly 50-50% in terms of attacks with male defenders. The UN also <coughs> highlighted that those engaged in the peace processes were being were being targeted and slightly that's one of the reasons why women um, increase impact against women. Okay, so in terms of the rural, re rural reform, there's basically three kind of major pillars. One was access and use of unprotected land, legalisation of property rights, uh, talking about the agrarian frontier, and it also talks about the protection of the reservists camp as seen as the peasant farmer uh, reserve zones. It looks at development programs with a territorial focus and national plans for integrated rural reform. Um, within these agreements, these are some of the things that the women actually achieved. One of the major things was that women were included in terms of thinking about them as a fundamental part to the development of, rural econ of the rural economy. And that's really important because many of them are are heads of households in rural areas. So access to, for rural women to the land fund um, with free, giving them free land, um, but together with integral subsidies, special credits for the purchase of land. And uh, we saw the priority was stated would be given to women heads of households, and there were special measures to facilitate access of women to a full grant for, for land purchase. This is really important because women have really been discriminated against in the, in the rural areas. So it, all of these measures were intended to try to um, balance out the inequalities that, um, that women were experiencing. Um, the promise to address the barriers that confront women in relation to legalisation of land. Uh, of, of land. This was a major issue because much, much of the time the land that had been farmed, that was called Baldeals, and not owned, it was state-owned land, um, was only recognised in terms of the male member of the family as being uh, the owner of it, and that created a lot of problems when that person had been killed, it wasn't actually seen as passing on to, to the women and children. So that's one of the aspects we've been looking at. Also giving special mentions in the agreement for their special legal <coughs> advice and training for women about their rights, access to justice, with specific measures to overcome barriers to the recognition and protection of women's rights to land. So the whole educational aspect. Um, also, um, women on the Gender Subcommission really worked to ensure that it wasn't just on-the-ground things that were going to change for women, it was also that they would be in positions where decisions were being made, where policies were being made. So you saw that in terms of here they were... Um, specifically named as uh, being balanced in terms of representation of men and women on high-level committees for the formulation of general guidelines for the use of land and tenure. Land tenure. Use and land tenure. Um, 
they also had, uh, they were specifically mentioned in terms of access to cooperative projects and <coughs> solidarity projects. Uh, here they insisted on an inclusion of a gender perspective and in the National Plan for the Commercialization of Local Farming Economy in order to promote autonomy and organizational capacity of rural women and peasant farmer economies. So again, here, the kind of um, ensuring that women were mentioned once again. Um, access to scholarship and training was also specifically um, prioritizing women as well and also making sure that there was a focus on, on gender in relation to health, including sexual health and reproductive health. So a whole range of areas under that were integrated as well. Well, some of the proposals of Uribe particularly hit this area. I mean, this area was extremely important in the agreement uh, for, for many, many people, that, that whole reorganization of the countryside, the possibility of commercialization of small-scale products uh, by farmers, etc. It was a whole policy that had been missing in Colombia. And uh, it, was, it was very important. And unfortunately, some of the proposals of Uribe, well, overall the proposals tend to defend the status quo, tend in, in the direction of benefiting landowners and traditional politicians, mayors, governors, the military, or the establishment of a whole. So if you read through the 75, all of them really do go in that direction of maintain, maintaining the status quo. But specifically mentioned are things like no discrimination against agro-industry. Now that's interesting because some of the things that Uribe is mentioning are not actually in the agreement at all. And this is one of them. <laughs> so, um, and I put it there just to illustrate. So there is no discrimination. I mean, it would be quite easy to change that and say there was no discrimination and that, that would be done with. So when you look through the 75, there's a certain amount that would be very easy to change. But there are some that are really quite difficult. I mean, the other one that's mentioned, um, uh, certainly the zoners did the urban campesinos and peasant farmer zones. Under the time that Uribe was in office, they were really... Um, restricted, uh, they had huge difficulties, they were extremely stigmatized, um, but it's certainly that they're really not favored beyond mentioning um, that they, that they, um, that there's a way of, um, that there are one way of farming within the agreement itself, and that there's plans to support their development. Other than that, other than, and that's similarly for all of the small-scale farmers, other than that, it's not really any different. So those two could be quite easily incorporated, I think, because they're, they're not actually something that's in there. But where you have uh, much more difficulty and where there really are issues are things like um, where he talks about the importance of not putting in uh, automatically. Well, what happened is that in many areas of Colombia where there was forced displacement and it was really obvious that people who came, who, who maybe bought the, the land legally Commerce were very well, well aware that people had been forcibly displaced from that land. So they knew they were buying land that was being, people had been forcibly displaced from, often at, at prices, very low prices, etc. And basically, the court decisions have gone in favour of the fact that they actually have to look at this and um, that those, those uh, who hadn't taken sufficient care to ensure that they weren't buying land that was. <coughs> 
uh, that Tom would give you a force of the space, this would go into the land fund and then be redistributed. Uh, and basically what Arriba uh, is asking for in this is that um, an irrefutable presumption that they acted without fault. And that they did nothing to check, even if they did nothing to check the origin of the land, even in areas which were plundered and known and obvious, it is understood that they did not act negligently. And this is obviously an absolute shield and would involve changing the law on land restitution and also um, many government policies. Now, that, that is the other problem, that some of the things that Arrivi is wanting to change are not, as I said, not only not in the agreement, but they're actually in the Victims <coughs> and Land Restitution Agreement, which is already beginning to be implemented. And that's extremely worrying, worrying considering that so little of the land has actually been returned up to now. Mythical participation, well here, uh, the agreement itself looks at rights and full guarantees for the exercise of political opposition in general, and in particular for new movements rising out of the signing of the final agreement. It also includes things like access to media, which is important. Um, democratic mechanisms to ensure citizen participation. There's quite a, quite a bit being put in about um, citizens' participation, which is a, a very important and effective measures to promote greater participation in national, regional, local politics of all sectors of the population, including the most vulnerable, under equal conditions and with measures to guarantee security. And what that implies is developing of affirmative action measures, and that's another thing that particularly the Gender Subcommission uh, tried to put in so that you, you um, redress the balance of inequality. Okay, so um, basically under participation you find things like rejection. This is a statement that's actually I've translated, but uh, I need to allow for the translation, but uh, it's basically in the agreement itself. So it's where the, where the government and the FARC have stated specifically they reject any form of discrimination against women. They reaffirm the contribution of women as political subjects in public life, fighting um, for strength of democracy, etc., um, they talk about the importance of designing and guaranteeing um, a gender approach, <coughs> which, which looks at affirmative action uh, measures. Uh, they talk about strengthening of political and civic participation of women on an equal footing, um, and looking at balanced represent representation of women, women in, in various instances of government and policy making. Um, and raising awareness of rights and to promote the leadership of women. And so looking at other things like training programs on political rights and, and, and participation, etc. And as I say, one of the things that's come out strongly through the agreement, and one of the other speakers mentioned this, was that yes, people have been victims in the conflict, but they consider themselves to be political actors in this conflict, right? And it's been a very positive approach in terms of looking at some of these issues. Um, okay, so basically, well, there, there's, there's a various, there was also a specific <coughs> reference under political particip participation um, in terms of promoting also LGBTI <coughs> organizations and, and populations uh, and supporting them with special measures, etc. Okay. Here, the, the agreement <coughs> itself actually provides the creation of um, well, obviously, you know that um, 
Uribe. I mean, the obvious ones, like Uribe, is really against the, the FARC participating in politics, obviously. Uh, but there are also some other more technical parts where there's disagreements which would impact on the agreement itself as well. And so um, the agreement provides for the creation of 16 special districts in areas affected by the conflict uh, where people could be uh, elected. And although uh, it's not been asked to delete these 16 special districts, what's been asked is to remove the special uh, procedures that would be applied to these dis districts. So basically these areas, um, and those who part would participate were agreed to be like victims and social movements and organisations, etc. They wouldn't be the normal mainstream parties. Um, however, um, in order, that was a way to try to ensure representation of more marginalised areas. But the Central Democratic wants this, this removed. And without this restriction, it's very likely that the established parties, because of their financial resources, name recognition, etc., would have been with the seats. And so there would be no real reason to have an additional special district. Um, okay, so on, on the drugs, well, I think that... Um, Grace really covered most of this anyway. But basically, yeah, it's a program of prostitution, <coughs> um, development of comprehensive development plans with participation of communities uh, that men and women would design, implement, and evaluate, uh, and the evaluation of substitution programs, environmental recovery, etc., uh, prevention programs, prevention programs, and health solutions. It's looking at, um, in terms of production marketing, marketing of narcotics, etc., that instead of looking at it in terms of um, just punishment, etc., that they would look at it through prevention programs and health solutions. So, um, one of the things that uh, highlighted in the agreements is that special attention will be given to women working in the illicit drugs um, trade and with, with crops. Um, and that would be interrelated, particularly with the point one of the agrarian uh, policy um, on the development. Um, and attention and priority access to the rehabilitation programs for women and girls and adolescents, uh, drug consumers. And additionally to this point, it suggests that women in prisons convicted of offences related to trafficking should be offered um, educational provision so that they have other uh, additional options when they come out, uh, that there should be a more decent uh, environment for their detention, and um, eventually they're given conditions of restriction of free, uh, conditions of restriction, well, I haven't written that wrong, but basically that they, they would be looked at um, in terms of the types of sentences that they were given, because at the moment um, and this wasn't in the agreement, but it was agreed that it would continue to be debated, that women often suffer far more in terms of imprisonment for these kinds of crimes. So, for example, men might be let out to complete their sentence at home, but women would be considered to be a danger to their children and therefore not allowed out. And, and that, those sorts of conditions imposed on women, it was agreed that they would be discussed in more detail later. So that's basically um, okay, so these are some of the other aspects that um, they would include women in integrated as active participants in consultations on voluntary replacement, which I think 
ways of which she mentioned things really. But particularly one that she was well, come up was that um, recognizing the relationship between illicit drug use and violence and particularly domestic violence and sexual violence towards women. So it recognized that whole dimension that, that happened. Uh, and also the, the stigmatization of women uh, is much more acute of women by society of women uh, than of men. So to end the conflict, the process for the ceasefire and hostility, violent, uh, ceasefire and violence, but basically to have a ceasefire and, and, and then bilateral hostilities. Um, center under of weapons, reintegration of the FARC to the civilian life, economic, social, political, according to their interests. Agreement on security guarantees and the fight against criminal organisations responsible for killings and massacring uh, those that threaten human rights, defenders, social and political movements, including criminal organisations that have been designated successes of parallel groups and support networks, etc. The agreement mentions the process of reintegration of the fight in all its components and will have a differentiated approach to gender perspective with an emphasis on women's rights and special emphasis on the protection of women, children, and adolescents who have been affected by criminal organisations. And basically, it would be things like differential security protections, guarantees for non-repetition, and particularly systematic gender violence. So that's mentioned throughout the document. It's in this, this section that I think that women have achieved the most. Basically, looking at uh, in terms of truth, justice, reparation, and non-repetition. So, basically, there's been creation of a system of justice for, for justice, truth, uh, reparation, and repetition, uh, which combines judicial mechanisms for investigation and prosecution of the most serious human rights violations and infractions of international humanitarian law, together with non-judicial mechanisms and reparation. They've set up a peace, uh, special peace tribunal. Truth Commission and a special unit for searching for people who have forcibly disappeared in the context of the conflict. There's a commitment to demonstrate that this, well, there's a commitment within the agreement to actually demonstrate the disproportionate impact of the conflict on the bodies of girls and women in the Truth Commission. There's a special peace tribunal. And it has as its principles the recognition that the consequences of human rights violations are more serious when committed against women or when the victim is vulnerable or a specially protected subject <coughs> and deserves special protection and reparation. And the system has a differential and gender approach to respond to the particular characteristics of victimization in each territory and each population and especially for the needs of women and girls. So basically what women achieved under this was that transitional justice chapter of the peace accord um, clearly states that conflict-related sexual violence will not be amnesty. And this has been very important for many of the organisations. As a result, they created a special investigative team for the cases of sexual violence in conflict and in the investigation and prosecution unit um, of it. And this is in the investigation prosecution the investigation and prosecution unit in the special tribunal for peace. They established a separate historical truth commission mandated to collect evidence of sexual violence against women and girls that took place during the conflict. Um, the worst of the sexual violence obviously took place 
Society in rural areas. And the Special Historic Truth Commission is mandated to hold confidential sessions in rural areas, as well as to collect testimonies from women, girls, and their families. And they're mandated to include historical reconstruction and documentation of what happened to women, girls, in the conflict. So, this has already been touched on, but this was really shocking for many women's organisations and really concerning <coughs> because all that they had achieved in trying to have documented the importance of equality, the importance of um, affirmative measures for uh, gender was, was characterised by, uh, particularly by Alejandro Ordonez, uh, with this idea of ideology of Hennebel. Uh, gender ideology, and it basically uh, it, all the references to gender equality, sexual diversity, etc., within the agreement itself was used, and there was a lot of, in there about education and uh, women's rights and rights of, of other groups such as LGBTI, and it basically was taken and completely distorted, saying they're going to educate our children to become homosexual, that was constantly repeated, and it's attacking the traditional concept of the family and destroying that concept. And also they were talking about the, the reference to Singapore, um, to the um, International Agreement for, for Equality of Women as um, promoting abortion. And all of these things were really used by white women conservatives in terms of, um, of discrediting the agreement. It's noticeable that they're not really, there's not really a lot of discussion about this in the, in the no proposals, but the no proposals all will have implications for this because if they dismantle other sections of the agreement, they will dismantle what's there. So that's really, really worrying. Um, Okay, I think this was the one that was supposed to be under, uh, somehow the slides have got out of it, but this was basically um, what should have been under political participation. <coughs> but I think these are things that um, uh, we've already covered. Um, oh, the only thing that we haven't covered here, which is um, requesting differential treatment uh, for the military from the FARC, throughout the agreement, they try to actually maintain that there's kind of balance of treatment between the military and the farc. And while it's not exactly the same, many times it has some level of equivalence. So that's what um, these no proposals are asking for, differential treatment in favour of the military. So for example, whilst the FARC will be subjected to the doctrine of organised power, which means that the Kupla will be responsible for the acts of their subordinates, the military could only be convicted of this if they had direct knowledge of the fact and did not prevent it or take the decisions necessary. So it wouldn't be the same for the military, the same. And this imbalance in favor of the military who, who also committed heinous crimes really along with the FARC and the paramilitary um, just <coughs> breaks this principle of bilateralism and symmetry. And that would be something that would be really hard to renegotiate. So, um, I don't know how they would manage to do that, but it all would be, wouldn't be good. <coughs> and I just included at the end two things that I think are really important to highlight. It's important to retain, there's not been a lot of discussion about it, but there's a chapter on guarantees and a chapter on ethnicity. And the chapter on guarantees, because the guarantees chapter talks about dismantling the economic 
and political structures of the paramilitary groups. And this is something that human rights defenders have been saying for years is absolutely essential. That these have to, it's no use tackling just militarily the paramilitaries. You have to know who's fighting, etc. Otherwise, they're just, they're just um, repeated. Uh, so basically, this security guarantees chapter talks about setting up a commission, which is designed, which is to, uh, to design and coordinate, um, basically the policies on how they're going to, and an action plan on how they're going to dismantle paramilitarism. It's got really high-level people on it. It has a president on it, three different ministers, including the minister of defence, the security forces, the FARC, and also um, and two NGOs as well. So. It, it's a very high-level uh, committee. It suggests a commitment to making it work, and they would um, they would perform background checks on public servants. They would uh, look at the whole system uh, as to where paramilitaries might have been um, uh, might be uh, might exist within their government structures, but also uh, look at um, intelligence information and patterns uh, of, of financing. <coughs> And basically, um, there's also set up a high-level integrated policy system to, for dialogue and monitoring of safety and protection because of the political and social movements including the FARC. We'll have the uh, complementary mechanisms, one of which will be the National Protection Unit. There will be a special investigative unit, which is really important. The person will be appointed for six years. They actually have appointed them. It's a woman, a woman judge. And she was part of the um, justice and peace process and was very good under that. But even more important is that they will be appointed for six years, so there can't be any kind of political influence, hopefully, over and pressure over this person. Uh, and they would also have access to their own group of investigators uh, and the body of elite police, uh, as well as the possibility of issuing their own. Um, System as well, which is related to the protection of the, of the, of the politicians and political opposition. Um, also, its budget will be set in, in stone in the national government. Okay, one minute, right. Well, really, the, the only other thing that I wanted to chat on ethnicity was put in right at the end. We didn't think it was going to get there. It's a very important chapter in that it, it pulls together basically international principles and uh, things from the Constitution that are already there. It's not nothing that's really new, but the one thing it does say in there, which, which Nick referred to as being really important, and it really is for the upholding of the rights of ethnic communities, is that it says that ethnic communities have the right to free, prior, and informed consent, consultation and consent, it says. And that is very important because uh, those rights have been so trodden down, and they're the one thing that will protect their rights. And, in, you know, uh, in the future, and the only, well, I think I think I'll stop there. But um, the only, as for now, I say just the other thing. I won't enter into it, but I will say that if we were having this discussion on on implementation uh, that hadn't been an over, we would also be looking at some of the policies of the government that are pulling in the opposite direction of these accords. They are running parallel to and pulling. So the no vote isn't the only thing that threatens the implementation. Okay. Okay.